Welcome to the Untold Hour. This is Bowser, not rolling solo. You're not getting solo Bow Wow for a fourth or fifth time <laughs> in a row. I know. It's a, it's a horrible thing to have stated ever. Uh, but I'm not solo Bow Wow this week, so we can retire that phrase. I'm joined by a very special guest co-host, Sapphire Sandalo from Stories with Sapphire and from the Untold Hour. You were a guest just a few weeks ago. Yes, I was. Great to be back. Thank you for coming back. You're back this week uh, to help interview our guest, who is Delia Diambra. And Delia is a, an investigative journalist and a podcaster. She has two shows with Audio Chuck. One is called Counter Clock, and one is called Park Predators. And we're going to interview Delia in just a moment, and we're going to dive deep with her history in true crime, what led her down that path, and what these two shows specifically cover because they're very different shows but prior to interviewing delia i thought we would have a little horror chat sapphire yeah (laughs) i wanted to ask you if there's something you watched this week that you liked and i'll share something i watched this week that i liked mostly i watch old movies that i've seen 30 times or new (laughs) movies that i wind up hating so (laughs) i actually saw something this week that i liked but it was an old movie all right. But uh, what did you digest this week, uh, horror-wise, that you enjoyed? I So I got Shudder like a month ago, and so I've been trying to watch a new movie almost every day. Oh, this wow. Week, awesome. I, yeah. I mean, a lot. Okay, anyways. <laughs> um, <laughs> I Were you going to talk about the... What, that just that you, you have a lot of time? or <laughs> No, I, I don't even know where I was going with that. <laughs> um, but I recently watched the new La Llorona movie. Okay. Not the white one. Not the white Warner one. Brothers. Right. <laughs> the one that, um, oh, I do not know the director's name, but it is a Guatemalan filmmaker. I'll look it up while you uh, tell us about it. Yes. Um. So the this movie is actually not about the folk tale of La Llorona like it's not like an origin story or whatever um it deals with real horror like it's based in or what do you okay wait sorry wait cut that part out (laughs) no that's fine um uh it's based on the Guatemalan genocide that happened um oh interesting indigenous people yeah and so it takes place in Guatemala and the um what do you the general uh, he's on trial for the crimes now. Like, I guess it's like 30 years after they happened. Um, and so the movie follows him and his family. And it's, see, the thing is, it's not really, I wouldn't really call it a horror movie. It's more huh. of like a political thriller with horror elements. But it's very like slow burn. But I really like slow burning movies like The yeah. Witch or stuff like that. Because um, it's just, I don't know. I like it. I like when things just linger and you just like stare at stuff. Totally. But it's really, it's beautifully made. And just the fact that it's based in, you know, stuff that really happened. Like, that's my favorite type of horror where it's like, ooh, you know, the, the real world is as scary as fiction sometimes, you know. And you don't um, find many yeah. politically themed horror films. Mm, or do I you? Mean, maybe and not that's just so... a blind spot for me. 
I guess like because this it's so it's very blatantly political, but I feel like horror movies by their nature are political. Art well, that's is true. Political, no matter yeah. what, everything yeah. has some sort of. Not the movie I'm going to talk about this week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, or although maybe it is the director is, uh, and I don't know the correct pronunciation of this, so I will mm-hmm. say that first, and then say that his first name is spelled J A Y R O. And so I don't know if Jairo, that's Jairo Bustamante. Maybe. Okay. Um, yeah, Guatemalan filmmaker, born in 1977. So it's interesting because you haven't seen the uh, the the vehicle that starred Linda Cardellini. No. I I, I uh, a lot of people weren't happy with right. it. Um, do you feel like without having seen that though, this mm-hmm. film did justice to? The legend of La Llorona, or was it less concerned with investigating the legend? Right, it was. Um, it sort of takes. How do I explain this without like giving everything away? It's not an origin story, and I feel okay. like the Warner Brothers movie—that's what it was aiming for. It was like right. we're going to take this really well-known um, legend and do a movie around that, whereas this, you know, La Llorona simply means the weeping woman, and it does take. It takes elements from the folklore and applies it to one of the characters in there. And so in that way, it is related. Um, I don't know if that <laughs> is I think helpful that at all. It's helpful without giving away spoilers, which we, we probably don't want to do, because I think it came out pretty recently, correct? Very recently, yeah. Yeah. At least on Shutter. I don't know if it was available before that. It may have been. So you'd recommend people check it out. I do. But here's the thing. I I highly recommend it, but just know that it is not a classic typical horror movie so if you're looking for the spooky spooks if you're looking for the jumpy jumps you're not gonna get it you're gonna get really beautifully shot cinematic right (laughs) imagery and um just like a story that just really like i don't know it i had to sit for a while and think about it because i was like wow that was a lot that's good (laughs) if we had a rating system you would give it no spooky (gasps) spooks and no jumpy jumps (laughs) but exactly yeah out of out of how many Floating ghosts. Our little logo is a ghost. So how many oh, okay. floating ghosts out of, I guess, out of five? Five um, ghosts? You know, I'll give it, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give it a 4.5. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. 4.5 for La Llorona. Yes. And I watched something. Here's a blind spot for me. Um, I haven't seen very many Vincent Price movies even yeah. though I would say to anyone, I love Vincent Price. Um, you said you Closer. haven't either. I haven't. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, I'm not an old timey movie person like you are. <laughs> I definitely do enjoy. I think there's a lot going on with why I, I like watching older horror films. I think part of it is, admittedly, because um, I I can enjoy them as if I didn't move to LA and attempt to be a part of the industry. Like mm. I don't think of them as I am currently, whereas if I watch modern horror, I may know the writer, or I may have pitched on something similar, or the actor in that film said no to my project. There's baggage. Yeah. Yeah, and if I go back, uh, there's no baggage. So it's, (laughs) I can kind of time travel away from the baggage. Um, I even have like a Vincent Price pin that I wear. Uh, You'd think I was a super fan. But um, I was... I'll just go to Amazon Prime sometimes, and there's certain movies that'll kind of unlock so many great 
films that uh, of the ilk that I want to spend time with. Like if you go to Ghoulies on Amazon Prime, I don't know if it's on Prime anymore, but it was uh, like two years ago. Ghoulies, it'll suggest every other shitty Gremlins knockoff like in a row, just perfectly plated for me. And I found a movie this week that did that. I came across a movie called The Monster Club with Vincent Ooh, Price. Okay. And I mean, you call something I'm in if you call something that. If it's a club or a squad or a crew, if it if it if it is is implying that there's going to be multiple monsters together in one mm-hmm. movie, you know, then I'm there. That's and your brand. Yeah, that's my brand for sure. The team up, the mashup, yeah. I like monster friends. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I like it when they get along together and they all hang out. <laughs> um, so this movie, I'd never heard of it. It's from 1981, and I guess it was an attempt to bring together all these horror legends. It was going to be Vincent Price, Christopher Lee... Peter Cushing, Donald Pleasance from Halloween, mm. and I want to say John Carradine. Um, and then all of, most of the horror legends were like, no, this is trash. Uh, but Vincent Price was like, yeah, sure. And Donald Pleasance was like, yeah, sure. And actually, so was Carradine. Um, okay. Yeah, I believe. Yes, yes. So the plot of the movie is that Carradine plays an aging horror writer stumbling, I think, through the streets of London late at night, and he's bitten by a vampire, played by Vincent Price, and he's like, ah, geez, like, what the fuck was that? And Vincent Price says, don't worry, I didn't bite you enough to turn you into a vampire, I just wanted to taste to see if you if you were uh, had sweet-tasting blood. And the horror writer's like, uh, okay, what do we do now? And Vincent Price is like, I don't know, why don't you come with me to my monster club? <laughs> and then it just cuts to this, like, 80s band playing a song in a club called Monsters Are Okay. Yeah, 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 I think was the chorus. And I was like, how the fuck have I never seen this? (laughs) I mean, I was so in. He takes him to this club and he basically starts to teach him about monsters. He's like, you've written about monsters for decades, but I actually know them. And he goes through the genealogy of monsters and there's this great painting on the wall. And he's like, you know, if a werewolf hooks up with a vampire, that's called a, a were-vamp. But if a werewolf hooks up with a ghoul, it's called a shadmock. Like, there's all these weird what? terms for these... And then you just see these stories about these monsters. Like, what would ha- What what does a shadmock do? And they can whistle and melt your face off, I guess. Wow. And they go between those short stories and back to the club where he's learning about these monsters and bands are playing. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I, it couldn't be more, it's one of those things where it was so on brand for me, I'm, I'm ashamed I haven't seen it before. Um, and I'm, I almost didn't want to admit on the show that this was my first viewing. I wish I could have said, well, I rewatched Monster Club, one of my faves, but I'd never heard of it. But it's so fun and still kind of has, it's really well shot. It still has okay production value. Mm-hmm. And, uh... I forget the name of the company, but there's a company that was famous for making these anthologies. Oh, I have it right here. Amicus. Uh, I guess okay. the producer was known for making these anthologies, but they had they had been better produced in the past. And this was him kind of trying to do one last anthology film. And arguably, I think most people say it didn't turn out very well. But for me, I, I don't. You can't get that kind of weirdness anywhere else. So it's still amazing, you know. 
you got these 80s bands playing monster-themed songs and then Vincent Price talking about shadmocks and hume-goos. That's the term for a human that... Hume-goos. Hume-goos. If a human and a ghoul have a child, it's a hume-goo. So, yeah. There's no... Who wrote this movie? That, uh, I don't know. Let me let me look it up. There's no movie that can utter the term uh, hume-goo and not get my complete... And utter devotion. Uh, it was written by R. Chetwind Hayes. Oh, right. And Edward Abraham. And R. Chetwind Hayes had written a book called Monster Club. Mm, which this so was, based on that? Yeah, kind of loosely. I think it was an anthology book um, that they pulled some of these stories from. And it was directed by Roy Ward Baker, um, who directed a lot of great horror movies back in the day. He did a movie called Asylum in 72. Anyway, that's what I watched this week that I loved. <laughs> Very happy for you. And it didn't require uh, kind of meditating on it afterwards <laughs> like <laughs> La Llorona did. <laughs> but it did make me download some of these songs. Were they original and, songs? Uh, the movie? I think so. One of them... Because they're just too on the nose. Like, they're so specific. I think they must have been original for the mm. movie. Well, that's um, kind of cool. I appreciate it when movies have original music. Totally. It felt like these bands were given the task of, look, dude, you got to write some kind of monster pop song. I don't know. Fuck it. And then they came up with what they came up with. Because <laughs> they were so specific about vampires or ghouls or monsters in a club. But <laughs> one... Um, was not about any of that, and it was by the band Night, and it was just called I'm a Stripper. And this song started, and I was like, well, this one they didn't write for the movie. This is just a song about being a stripper. Uh -huh. But what was so funny is at the end of the song, the woman who's playing the stripper, uh, who's been kind of disrobing the whole time, and I'm thinking, like, well, she's going to she's gonna turn into a monster? Like, where's this? Every other song's been about monsters. <laughs> she then goes behind a curtain, like a sheer curtain, right before she's nude, goes behind a sheer curtain, and, it, like, not purposefully, but then becomes animated. I think it's supposed to be a special effect. What? We're supposed to still feel like it's her shadow. But clearly, okay. you know, it's animation. And she then, through the sheer curtain, animated, takes off her skin and is a dancing skeleton. Well, that's actually kind of cool. It was great. I'm telling you. Watch Monster Club, or at least get as far into it as you can. Um, before how did you watch it? it? Amazon, I think Prime? it's just Amazon Prime, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna look it up. And if I hate it, you will be the first to know, yeah. Let me know how you feel about Monster Club. <laughs> and I may watch a uh, lot, Yorona, actually, because I think it'd be fun to watch something that was a little more like meditative and uh, I guess like atmospheric. It feels like just mm -hmm. from the stills I looked through. Um, it's maybe, beautiful, yeah. Maybe I should watch something that's that's uh, this beautiful that doesn't just kind of tickle my tackier tastes. All right. Well, with that, let's get into our interview with true crime podcaster Delia Diambra. Well, I'm very excited to be joined by two awesome people this week. Our guest, Delia Diambra host of Counterclock and Park Predators for Audio Chuck. And I'm joined by Sapphire once again, 
this week in the context of uh, co-hosting. Thank you for being here, both of you. Thanks for having us. <laughs> well, so first up, Delia, I just wanted to, I wanted to talk about your interest in true crime and how you uh, you began both of these podcasts, and then maybe from there we can backtrack and go through your history as a broadcaster. But what initially got you uh, interested in starting specifically these podcasts that you're doing now? Yeah, so Counterclock, really, it was just like a, um, a Google search of an unsolved murder in my hometown in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. So I had some skills and some chops from from news and like, you know, covering crime and stuff. And I listened to a lot of true crime podcasts. So I was listening to Serial. I was listening to Up and Vanish and like all the other great shows. And I thought, you know, I have some skills. I think I can do this and where best to do it. The place I know the best. And I thought for sure there's not going to be like a crazy, you know, decades old case where I'm from. But like one search and it was the Denise Johnson homicide. And I immediately like got in touch with the family and law enforcement. And so that just birthed like everything, you know, counterclock. And and that case is, you know, still ongoing and a lot of cool updates with it. But so I was just like, where can I do it? And I want to do it in my hometown. So that's how that, you know, birthed. And then I met Ashley Flowers with Audio Chuck, and then that grew from there. Um, but yeah, it was just that interest in, okay, I want to cover crime. I want to help contribute. I want to reinvestigate but I need to do it where I'm not like completely detached and I actually have some resources and like people that I can use as a way to get into it. So yeah. And then park predators was just, you know, I love parks and let's see how, like, where's true crime fall in that. So yeah. Like, parks and predators. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't <laughs> like, just the alliteration alone. The alliteration wasn't enough. I literally like woke, I think I was in bed and I, I knew that I like, I needed to do like, this other show and like kind of merge where this was and just thinking about like how many murders happen in parks and parklands and forest lands. And I sat up one night and I was like, park predators, that's it. Like that is it. And so, you know, obviously it became what it is. And you, you have an interest in the outdoors as, as a lifestyle. I mean, you love being outdoors. Was there something that triggered a specific case that triggered the park predators idea or just a general curiosity about dark things that have happened in, in parks. So I got the idea actually sort of on my honeymoon. So me and my husband, we got married in 2019 in Rocky Mountain National Park, like in the heart of the park. Just a couple of us, we out there, got married. Well, we honeymooned for like two and a half weeks and a portion of that was in Yosemite. So we did Yosemite for like two days um, and a lot of other places like Lake Tahoe or whatever. But in Yosemite, I just was like, you know, we're all out here alone at some parts. Like we went hiking with like not as many people around us. And so I just like my true crime mind was just like, oh, I wonder if there's like ever been like a major murder here or something like that. And so then I just started to look into it in the months after that. And, you know, it, there wasn't a single case per se that was like, oh, I have to do it on this case or something. But as I started to look, I actually saw quite a large volume of cases in, in all different um you know, victimology, victimologies, all different, like, you know, serial killers or spousal type stuff. Um, so then I just was like, man, there's there's so many stories here. Um, so that's kind of where where I landed on it was just like, whoa, I'm shocked. <laughs> that's really cool. Actually, I want to know, um, like, <laughs> I love how you said, like, your true crime mind, like, brought you to that <laughs> place. Like, in what other ways does your obsession with true crime affect your personal life? 
Yeah, because I can I, imagine Googling <laughs> that on a trip and your husband being like, don't Google that right now. <laughs> no, we just got married. What are you doing? Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I just, I constantly have this thought of, and I, I honestly think this came from my my background in my six years in in covering crime and covering general assignment stuff. Like, you do see the worst of the worst, and whether that be murders or, or anything else, like, I was daily and, like, sometimes hourly reminded of, like, you know, there's a lot of violence in this world. And... Um, things happen like so senselessly. And so that's kind of always on my mind because I was always trained to like be prepared for, you know, the crazy, whatever. Um, And so I always have these thoughts in my mind to ask questions, to be like, how safe is this place? Like, is this shopping mall somewhere that something bad has happened? Or like, was it 10 years ago? Or was it two days ago? Like, I'm always really curious. And so I try not to like obsess to where I'm constantly like paranoid and looking over my shoulder, but I'm always thinking about things that I know are true because I witnessed them with my own eyes in my past career and in life. So then like my life, I try and just like think about that and like be guarded, but not be like too over the top. So obviously the thought like we're in parks a lot, honey, we're hiking a lot. Like how vulnerable are we? So yeah, I mean, it. it is like not a thought everybody has, but I did. So <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to, I tend to be, uh, I'm not as pragmatic. I have the fear, but then, but it's not rational, you know, um, which is just something personal. I thought I would share that. But if <laughs> I go on, if sharing. I go on a hike, I'll have that paranoia, but then I'll realize like, well, I don't have anything, even if it's just a fear of, of a predator of an, of an animal right. or, you know, there's a, there's snakes on my hike all the time or coyotes. And I often think like, oh, I should probably have thought about these threats and I go through these situations, I play them out. Like, if a coyote attacked me, what do I do? Do I punch it in the nose like a shark? Like I've heard you do about a shark. <laughs> I don't think about it rationally. It doesn't seem like you fixate on the the fear, the kind of like lofty idea of bad things happening. You're much more you're much more pragmatic about it, which is which is healthy. Yeah. And and I will say, like in my previous career, like in in journalism, I had instances where, you know, I was physically attacked or assaulted and things like it really do happen in a split second. So, I mean, call that whatever you want to call it. I think it's a healthy fear. I think it's a learned fear. So, you know, that's a little more on the personal side. But I think it's just always that thought of like you just don't know people and you have no idea what people's like motivations can be. And so, you know, I just it's just it's in me now. Um, Yeah. But I mean, that's a little more deep. <laughs> well, so let's go back. Um, obviously, as a broadcaster, you were in situations that that got a little scary, a little perilous. What what began your interest in reporting, and uh, and was it always kind of fused with with crime and safety, or did it start off as something else? And then once you got in the field, you realized, oh wow, there's a lot of heavy stuff going on out here. Yeah, so I originally like got into like sports broadcasting and news, but it was more like I worked for a professional hockey team in North Carolina. I worked for, um, you know, sports network, uh, you know, everything from NASCAR to you know professional sports. So, so I was in that kind of technical production space. But then I I transitioned to on air um, to cover news because I I. Not that I couldn't contribute in that space, but news for me was I felt like I was really I'm a very in-person person. And so um, which is funny because I do podcasting, but (laughs) (laughs) um, but I was very like into being on the ground, telling stories, being in the places that like a lot of other people wouldn't want to go. And so, 
that just really got my interest and in a lot of what local news in any market is is your it's a lot of crime um it's just the nature of the business and so as i was covering daily you know big stories or carrying on stories or even little stories that you know after the 24 hour cycle they go away but a lot of those cases like even to this day they they still stick with me the people the families i met and i always had this thought of like how can I contribute more? Like, how can I keep following this? Like, we only found out so much, but there's so many more questions to ask. So that's when I really got into the, like, what we consider, you know, the true crime investigative. Like, I was always an investigative journalist, but I really was able to narrow my focus from the day-to-day to the longer form, longer term, you know, investment in in these people's lives and stories. So that's where that kind of ended up. And podcasting was just the best uh, way for me to do that uh, when I was starting out on my own and then and then going to work for audio check so yeah I mean that was pretty much how it came to be just a couple of years well cool. do you have uh this is uh coming from a horror fan do you have um are you able to because you can confront these things in the real world do you also have a stomach for horror films and things that are darker in nature that are fictional or are they separate from you? Because like my my sister works in uh, forensics mm-hmm. and Ooh. she's had to see some things that for me are like, well, that's worse than anything I've ever seen in a horror film. And she's like, well, if I saw that in a horror movie, I'd be terrified. Yeah. Like, yeah, but you saw it in real life. But for her, it's once it's wrapped in the, you know, the tone of a, of a, of a fiction with music right. and the tension rising and the all the ambiance of that. It becomes scary, but in the real world, she doesn't uh, digest it that way. It's That's just so different for her. I know. I talk yeah. to her about it all the time, and we trade stories about horror films I've watched and real things she's had to do for her very adult job. And Does it's she ever very watch, interesting. Like, CSI. Huh? Does she ever watch like CSI or she's, shows like uh, that? She can't really because Classic. she she just says that you know she's pointing out what they wouldn't actually have done. Oh yeah, that's like annoying. It becomes annoying. <laughs> yeah. She nitpicks it too much. I mean, down to like, oh well, we don't wear those types of shoes if we're at crime scene. You know, I'm like, okay, well, I don't know if they'll. You can relax. <laughs> yeah, those the Crocs, production will those care. Those Crocs are not crime scene certified. They exactly, <laughs> they're not walking through crime scenes in Crocs normally. But yeah, no, yeah. she can't really engage with that kind of fiction. It just doesn't really work for her. But um, but is this like the only area of your life where where you investigate those darker things, or are you kind of uh, a, do you always kind of have a leaning toward that stuff? Um, I definitely like a lot of like books that I'll read. I'll read both like fiction and nonfiction, um, like true crime books. Like a lot of the um, stuff that's like real life is like another investigative journalist who like focused on something for like ten years. So that's kind of educational to me. I love you know. Um, it, you know, fiction in terms of true crime and, and things like that. But um, Patricia Cornwell, it's like I've read her since I was like, I think 10 or something. Like yeah. That's always got. But like to your sister's point, like I've seen a lot of death and destruction and murder like firsthand from like being on scenes and like dealing with families and like the even the legal wranglings and like, you know, seeing all that stuff. But like you can like compartmentalize where it's very clinical Versus very like because also part of my job was seeing that stuff and being interested in wanting to ask the questions, but then having to break it down for an audience that Mm -hmm. I couldn't really describe all of that to like and I wasn't supposed to, you know, especially like a death of a child or a murder of a spouse or, you know, murder, suicide, something like that. 
So I did have to kind of digest it for myself and then create a space where I could deliver it to an audience to really get the importance of the message across without going into all those, you know, expository details. So, Mm. um, so in a way that's kind of how it it changed and affected me, but, um, I like books and TV and movies and stuff just to kind of like, you know, be like, Oh, that's interesting. Like, yeah, it's not realistic, but it intrigues me. And I guess one area I do like, I don't obsess over, but I guess it's kind of in this genre is I like really started like, not like researching, but I have a thing about like learning about like demon, demon possession stuff and like understanding, (laughs) like understanding, you know, where that, where that is for people. Um, I myself have my own beliefs, you know, personally about things like that, but um, it is just interesting, like hearing people's stories, like, cause I'm an interviewer too. Right. So I love just like hearing people's conscious stream of thought about their experiences. Like that's raw. Like you can't emulate that in any other way. So for me, I'm like, oh, I could read someone's transcript of whatever they went through for like an hour, whereas a normal person would be like, this is boring, you know. So, yeah. so that's one area that like I've kind of like looked at and thought, okay, a little bit more on. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's been interesting. Do you ever feel? And I was I was actually going to ask about this as we got deeper into the true crime stuff, but this is a perfect time to bring it up. Do you feel like? Um, let's see, how do I phrase this? That does the. Do you feel that the supernatural influences? any of the, the you know, more, for lack of a better term, evil things you've had to confront through these podcasts? Um, or do you see them as, well, here's the best way I think I can find my way into this. I used to study uh, Jeffrey Dahmer because I was writing a screenplay about him. Oh, wow. And it was very interesting to talk to people that uh, some people were even, I talked to his pastor who spoke to him in prison. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was kind of saying, hey, so... Like, maybe there was some devil stuff going on. And this pastor was like, no, this happened because of his parents' divorce. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, totally, totally. I looked like the fool. <laughs> for even sure, though, for sure. Yeah, I thought I was talking to the guy that would be on board for that. Then there was a Baptist preacher, though, in uh, Milwaukee that actually, like, cleansed Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment after the fact. And it was kind of... Wow. I don't know. Maybe they made it like a bit of a show of it. I think it may have even been televised. I think. So he could or, write a book later or something. Right. Like there were news cameras there. <laughs> I and cleansed Jeffrey Dunn. Totally. <laughs> totally. My story, like the Amityville house. But so there's always this line of, I, I, I would never say the devil made him do it and remove all accountability from the human being. But I do sure. believe in a certain amount of supernatural, you know, influence, or at least I believe in, in things that are powerful kind of outside of our realm. So I just wonder how you reconcile that or if you look to reconcile that or maybe you're beginning to yeah, because I you're mean, reading about demonology, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, none of the cases that I've covered for my shows, like it tie into that. But I will say like a lot of observances that I have seen in the cases that I've covered for Park Predators in particular, um, the cases that have come to resolution, right? So the suspect has gone through the criminal justice system both sides have been laid out, you know, the defense and the and the prosecution. So there's a, a laying out of everybody's side of things. And then ultimately juries decide. Um, and in all the cases that in the show have that resolution, obviously they 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 weighed um, against the, the suspect. So they got convicted. What is interesting when you when you look at that piece of these killers, they're convicted now is they you see a lot of um, claiming of things like that, you know, mm. whether that be influence of whether it was like the devil or 
influence from uh, psychological trauma, which, again, is a total thing when applied properly. I'm not saying that can't be someone's legal defense. What I what I mean Mm -hmm. is like, you know, I think there's a lot of like kind of for lack of a better term, what the general public would say is kind of kooky uh, concoctions of this is why this person committed this either to remove the heinous nature of why they committed or whatever. So I do see a lot of that tie into these crimes. Um, and I even think of like a case that's like big right now. Probably people know is like the Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow out in Arizona. They're like called no, the like apocalypse couple. Oh, I don't know um, if I know about them. Oh, it's like, it's like super big right now. Like Dateline's like doing all this crazy stuff with it. But like, they're like a couple who, um, it's a super big synopsis, but basically like they like have this, you know, belief system that, um, you know, they are like not of this world. There's a lot, a lot of supernatural like element, whatever. And obviously the two, uh, her two children have, I believe they've identified their bodies or they either found bodies on the property. They went like missing and like no one could figure out what's going on. They weren't providing any answers. They weren't like officially suspects. Like, but there's this whole like backstory of how they're like, we're not of this world. And like, right. you know, we're not oh. attached to this. And like, yeah, just read up. I think it's Lori Vallow, Chad Davo. Like, it's an insane case that's like gripping like true crime, like people who are like following on Google alerts and stuff. But yeah, like that's one of those cases where I'm like, okay, from the get go, this is the approach that this is this is what is going to the masses. You know what I mean? This is the the this you know the story that's out there, um, and the, and it's like one of the most insane like supernatural type things that that's being used as part of their um, their story. So. Yeah, I think it, you do see that cross sometimes in true crime space, but a lot of times it's it's like you said, where it's this is why they did this. This mm-hmm. is the impact, but it's up to the individual to decide, right? And it's up yeah. to juries to decide. But that's where I see the most crossover, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, have there been any cases? Let's get into kind of the specifics of uh, Counterclock. Let's talk about some episodes of Counterclock that specifically um resonated with you were there any specific episodes that i know you said that the entire mission kind of began on a personal note because it was about researching a local unsolved crime were there any other episodes that stood out that either maybe stayed with you in a way that you wish they hadn't like they just were a little too uh too heavy or are there there any episodes that just you know you're going to return to return to those families return to that case that you you know haven't really finished all of your investigation on yeah so counterclock season one is all on the same murder it was my real-time investigation so i'm with the johnson family i'm in that the whole time but every episode like there is like it's as i was investigating and uncovering things and lay that so some of it was um able to be produced but like then it was it was you know month to month or however the information was flowing in so in that in particular, there are some really pivotal moments in that series where I found out information for the first time that, like, the police didn't even know. These people had oh, wow. never spoken um, about what they witnessed and saw. And, you know, those recollections, like, that's incredible for the case. It's also incredible material for what I was doing. Um, but just, again, it goes back to that, like, raw interview uh, stuff with people. And there's a couple of those in, in um, the episodes, like, when I got the victim's like roommate that like only one other person like really kind of knew about. And she was like living with this victim up until a few days, up until a few hours before the murder. Like it's like stuff like that where I'm able to find these people, track them down with my investigative skills and 
then be able to interview them. So there's really pivotal moments. And the series brought it to the attention of the district attorney there where I'm from. He didn't even know about the case. Like Gosh. he had no idea it exists now. He wasn't in office when the crime happened. But like it just it shows you that like things get lost. And now that it's in their lap, it's it's making strides. And so it's all that effort. And so that's what really sticks with me is just that progress and the ability to show that progress to a listener. And I think that's what grips people is the intensity of it is moment by moment and you can make a difference. So yeah, that wow. show's been been really, really cool. I'm I'm so excited to come back with season two. I can't even wait. <laughs> yeah. That's like kind of amazing that you're able to offer this new information that authorities like just didn't know about before. Um wait, I had a question and now it's escaping me. Um That's cool. oh, no. Well I had a question kind of on that tip and I wonder if it's gonna be what was in your head. I I was going to ask, it seems like we've learned through true crime and through these, through independent investigators that um, police <laughs> often miss things. And whether it's because of like departments not getting along or bureaucracy or yeah, like the changing of the guard, but it feels like every true crime documentary I watch, uh, that is what happens, that these things just fall through the cracks. Is that what you found or do you feel like you find most people are trying to do their job to the best that they can, but it's just unfortunate that these details get missed or, you know, I think it was the, was it the golden state case where these mm -hmm. uh, departments from different, you know, uh, counties, jurisdictions, jurisdictions yeah. were <laughs> like kind of at war with each other and not giving each other information and, and had like a lot of weird political issues with the other agencies yeah. and it was like okay well aren't we all looking for the same outcome here right aren't we on the yeah. same team yeah aren't we on the <laughs> yeah, same team and, we want to solve these crimes yeah and i think to law enforcement's like defense in a way like yes like people change of guard people move departments like people retire so there is all that but like i am a big believer too and and i know this to be true is like you're in that space, like you are only as good as the experience that you have, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't know to do something, if you're ill-equipped, Ill then you're not going to do the things that need to be done. So people can call that a botched investigation. People can call that a cover-up, whatever they want to call it. The fact is, is like certain things have to be done. And if they are not done or not followed up on, then, yeah, it's not going to look good on law enforcement's end. Mm -hmm. The issue with a cold case is that the passage of time is your biggest enemy. It always will be. And so mm -hmm. that's in everything from, again, personnel to evidence to people's memories. I mean, you've got so many things going on. But, yeah, I mean, the size of agency is a huge thing. If you've got an agency with 10 police officers versus an agency with 700 your experience is going to be a lot different, mm -hmm. you know, and, and your personnel changeover is there's going to be less, you know, less people that know about the case kind of thing. And so it just uh, there's so many challenges. But, yeah, in a lot of these cases, um, that's what we see. And it is really disheartening. But that what's amazing about that is when an investigative journalist comes in like me, I'm interviewing people and I'm providing that information to law enforcement. They can do whatever they want with it. But people are more comfortable talking to me about their memories from 20 years ago or 10 years ago sometimes than they are talking to the police because they know, mm -hmm. well, I don't know you. You weren't a cop then. You know what I mean? But like I grew up there. I'm from there. My family all still lives right. there. Like I'm in I'm in the soil with them kind of thing. So 
I just think people have a more comfortability. And I also come from the approach of a conversation. And I think that's a real big thing in the investigative true crime space um, is just having that that conversation with people. And I think that resonates in in the the production and in the, the audio that people are listening to um, and the storytelling in general. But, yeah, sometimes people just want to talk to me and they don't want to talk to the cops. But that doesn't mean I'm going to withhold that from the cops, you know. So it's yeah. just it's an interesting space for sure. In the instance of a cold case, I mean, yeah, Denise uh, Johnson, it was 20-something years ago, right? Yeah, 97, so 23. 23. Years so ago. when you begin an investigation like that, um, who do you even, if you find evidence, who do you even give it to? I mean, there's a cold case division, right? If I've learned anything from TV. But yeah. is it as simple as that? You go to the uh, the local sheriff's department and... Go to their cold case division. Who do you give that information to? And do they so care? Like, yeah. And that's the thing, right? So you've got to like convince them that what you have is relevant, but, mm-hmm. and it's not something that they're just going to brush off. And so there's that burden on law enforcement's end to like take everything seriously, not just be like, oh, we've already done that. Oh, we've already heard that. Like, go look back in your files. Go look back in your evidence. Mm-hmm. See if what I'm saying corroborates that or what these people are saying corroborates that. But yeah, I mean, usually there's like a designated, like in the Denise Johnson case, there's a, a designated captain who's kind of like handling that. But, you know, again, it's like, okay, here's everything I have. Here's everything I have. I hope you're doing something with it. But then if you don't even know that, like in what I did, I'm like, I'm just going to call the district attorney. I'm just going to communicate directly with the highest law enforcement officer to let him know. And then when I did that after months of, you know, and continued, you know, communication with with that department, I talked to the DA and he's like, no, I've never heard about this case. I'm like, well, let me tell you all about it. Like, it's just like a chain of command thing. And that's just the hierarchy of that, uh, of that, um, you know, kind of thing with police departments and stuff. And and a lot of them do a fantastic job. And it's not me at all saying, you know, bashing on or anything, but there is a hierarchy. And unless you can really be dogging about it, you know, and, and, and go at it like a pit bull, you know. You got to get to the right people. Um, mm-hmm. And in this case, it, it worked out um, and continues how to work do, out. How do you make yourself a person that the authorities are going to, like, care about what you have to say? Because, right. I mean, can you imagine all these random people just, like, flooding police stations? Like, hey, I have information from, like, a thing that happened 30 years ago. Right. Like, how do, do you know how they would weed people out? Well, I know that I made myself a parent because I made a podcast. And I got uh, a couple hundred thousand, I don't know, million downloads, whatever it is, Um, that pressure as a journalist, that's one of my things, right? Is we hold those Mm -hmm. accountable. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like my creed, everybody's creed that's in that industry. So for me, it was be loud, do good work. Don't just like make a stink, like Mm -hmm. actually do the work that's beneficial to these families and to these people. But also the people that are responsible can't get away with not noticing it. And so that's mm-hmm. really the power of the medium that we're in. Um, and that was really it. Plus, I also had a background of, you know, clearly this girl has a, a professional career in this right. to some extent. So, <laughs> like you know, legit. <laughs> yeah, like anybody could have anybody could have just come to them with information. But when I'm also dispersing that information to a large audience, I think you, you can't ignore it at that point. So, yeah, that's that's a tool. I mean, it just is. Mm-hmm. So do you. Do you feel like over the course of season one that you ruffled any feathers? Were there any people in law enforcement, not naming names, but any people that were like, I don't want uh, an investigative journalist 
digging into these things mm. or, or doing my job better? Or had the guard and, and everyone involved kind of changed so much since 97 that you didn't really offend anyone that was working the, that case at the time? Um, I mean, the uh, the law enforcement agency that I was dealing with, they they have they have been cooperative. I did mm-hmm. get some interviews with them, but there's a there was a certain point where I was finding out information that I think they realized they just needed to pump the brakes for the integrity of their case, mm-hmm. which that's pretty standard for any journalist digging into something. There's going to be a point where that iron curtain comes down. Because law enforcement has the obligation to protect their case so that when they take it to court, they can they can do it right. And and evidence and information isn't out there that prevents them from doing that. I mm-hmm. did not do that in this case because everything I was finding out was being told to me by individuals that knew stuff. So I'm like, well, if they're not the guilty party, that information's out there. So it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's only something the killer would know kind of thing, you know. There's eyewitnesses that have come forward now saying these things and they all corroborate each other kind of thing. So I knew that I wasn't getting into those lines of, well, now everything's out there so the killer can get away with it, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's, at some point, the ability to go have that healthy, uh, you're giving me information, I'm giving you information, and we're on the same page, stopped with that agency. But, I mean, they, I think they support what's come out of the show, Um to help them as best as they can, but they have a case to protect. And I, and I respect that, but at the same time, you know, I'm not going to stop doing the work I'm doing because it's clearly made a difference. So yeah, that's where I know I forge on and, and we'll be all right. Yeah. Kind of Do you well, think yeah. that case will ever be solved? Yes, I do. Cool. I think it can. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I do. I, I, All right. Yeah, it's good. Um, I think it can be. I think there are methods in which that could come to resolution. Again, it is on law enforcement's end to to look into that and and be confident about that. Um, but yeah, I really do. I, just, cool. I mean, it feels like over the course of season one, there were numerous revelations about the case that your that your uh, investig- investigative instincts uncovered. And numerous articles about, you know, new revelations in Denise Johnson's case. Mm. Are you uh, returning to that case for season two or is it a new case for season two of Counterclock? It will be on a new case um, for season two. That's kind of all I'll I'll say on that until we have more announcements, but it will be on a new case. But it is the same format. um, So you're you're with me. I mean, I've been on this case um, a significant amount of time, put an cr- incredible amount of work into it, just like the first season. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it'll be good. I'm excited. I'm excited to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so let's talk Park Predators. Yes. Um, park Predators. <laughs> I-, I listened to a couple of episodes uh, yesterday and today, and uh, and and some are some are longer, some are shorter, some are kind of bite size, but they're really well done and they're very. Thanks fleshed out and well rendered you know i feel like i've experienced the entire thing um and get like a full scope of the of the case how do you find those how do you do the research to build out a season of that show yeah so really i have a lot of different ways that i go about it but um as you'll know as you listen to the series a lot of these cases um, are occurring in like the late 80s, mid to late 80s, yeah. 90s, early 2000s. Uh, we think we had one in like 2017. Um, so 
back in those days, um, newspapers were king, right? So I'm going all the way back into news archives available online. Um, so rereading good reporting by good reporters who worked for local news entities, right? Which is going to give you that perspective. Those are the people that were like in that park interviewing the family or interviewing witnesses. Like, so they were there, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The national coverage obviously is, it can be extensive, but it's a little more, you know, thousand foot views sort of thing. So I look back through all those people that have done great reporting, but I'm also looking at databases and public records, right? So I have some skill sets that allow me to navigate that space I'm looking at um, releases and archives from the FBI, from the DEA, like wh whoever is involved. So it's really going into a lot of those databases and looking for those little details um, and picking up on little things. There's a tremendous amount of stuff on some of these cases um, uh, with the convicted killers on YouTube. Like you can watch people's confession. You can watch these things that were entered as evidence in cases. Right. And so it's it's absorbing all that material. It's It's pretty laborious, but... That's what makes the good detail and that's what makes the, the full comprehensive story um, for the listener. And I think that that's yeah. really important, both for understanding the crime and the killer, whoever, but also for understanding the value of these victims. Mm -hmm. These people were real and they had families and they're missed and they had loved ones. And that's a powerful thing. Could be any of us. And so that's why I try and honor them in that way of telling a little bit of their story and so that you can understand like they weren't just murder victims mm -hmm. they're people and yeah. um and i think that's important because i think sometimes in the true crime space we we miss that we can miss that mark and that's the journalism side of me that's like no i i have seen people face to face mm -hmm. and you have to address that because it's a huge part of it so yeah but it was a lot of research hours yeah. and hours and weeks and weeks but quarantine helped that was for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's what so. I appreciate about the type of podcast that you have, because like I feel like what's missing for a lot of people in the true crime um, arena is that they, they seem to be a little bit disconnected to the cases that they talk about. Like they think or they share the stories just because they are fascinating stories, but they don't have that really like care that compassion and like listening to park predators i'm like wow she she really cares <laughs> and, <laughs> and it, yeah. i really appreciate that it, i think yeah. it's great <laughs> yeah it, it and i try to my best of ability but sometimes there's not as many details so you kind of just have to work with what you have to work with but yeah it's just an important element for me and i think you know there are a lot of people out there that would criticize like oh people are capitalizing on other people's you know traumas but at the same time like People don't share their stories, you know, they fade and you don't want that to fade. So, yeah, I think that, yeah, that is something that stood out to me is that um, the humanity of it all is is very mm -hmm. present in your episodes. And it doesn't just feel like a listicle. Uh, there's not a dis dis disassociation with the human side of it. It's feels yeah. very, very lived in. Yeah. And I've been to some of the parks that these crimes occurred in, too. So I'm like. I've been there, you know, like <laughs> that could have been me, you know, kind of thing. Like you don't want to make it about yourself, but you realize like these are real places. This yeah. is reality. Yeah. Well, why do you think um, you said a lot of the episodes are kind of 80s and 90s? Why was I mean, I guess this is a dumb question if it's why was crime so much, you know, more rampant back then? But it does feel like as a kid from that time, I heard a lot more about um well, it's kind of twofold. I heard a lot of horror stories that some were true about a kid getting taken from this park or from this parking lot or this mall. Did it, was there something about that era that 
made that kind of crime more rampant, especially in parks? Were they less, uh, was there just less security? Was there more trust between, you know, strangers? It just feels like that was like the era of, mm-hmm. and I have no numbers to support that, but it feels like I, know. I, like, I grew up. Zero data. Zero <laughs> data, but I just grew up with that abduction fear and um, yeah. I think all those urban you know, legends that were based on a lot of true stories. Yeah, and I think the more I look at it, so my big thing is like, Something that consumes a lot of my time is 90s music, 90s basketball, and 90s unsolved murders. <laughs> like, yeah. That's like, that's life. Um, but no, so it is interesting. The more that I look at cases from that like mid 80s to early 2000s, really like the cases that like occurred in the, the late 80s, mid to late 80s and 90s, but then had resolution going into 2000s, right. I think mm. speaks to everything with the scientific advances in solving crimes, Yeah, um, oh, which totally. is super awesome. So it's kind of like the the way technology evolved in the 90s, right? We went from, like, no cell phones to, like, by the end of the 90s, we had cell phones. So, like, there's this, like, crazy spurt of, like, advancement. And I think that that the the crime space was, was not um, separate from that, in that mm-hmm. growth. And so what I've seen with a lot of those cases is, like, sometimes it is just good old-fashioned police work, like, tracking people. But a lot of times it's it's the waiting it's the waiting yeah. for science to catch up to what you know you have, but what you need to be able to prove in court to arrest mm-hmm. someone and to catch someone. And unfortunately, in certain cases, perpetrators are able to commit cor- more crimes than their original crime before right. they're caught. We all know that. So uh, for me, I think it speaks a lot to to that advancement. And in these cases with the parks, these crimes are occurring in very rural areas very backwoods areas, some little to no evidence, some a lot of evidence, but that resolution just wasn't able to be attained until the times caught up with with forensically what needed to happen. So were there more crimes? I don't know. Were there more crimes solved that were backdated to then? I think there's could be a big argument for that. Um, But yeah, I mean, with like abductions and things like that, like I grew up, yeah, thinking like, oh, I heard that again. I heard that again. And, you know, some of those cases aren't still aren't solved but some of them got solved in 2005 2010 you know Mm. golden state killer that was like what like two years ago i mean that guy was committing crimes in like i think don't quote me but the 70s 80s not i mean yeah mm -hmm, decades right so yeah i mean just the advancement i think just goes to uh, we're i think we're seeing more numbers and more data as we look back and go whoa we solved all these but they all happened back then right so that would change Mm. the stats back then so it's really intriguing to me. I mean, all that stuff is super interesting. And I, I became more intrigued the with the episodes I did for Part Predators that fell into those categories, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually feel like maybe crime has always been, like that type of crime has always been the same, but maybe in that era we just heard about it more. Like, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to wrap yeah. my head around the fact that, like, more crime happened. Like, I feel like crime has sort of always... I know. Well, yeah, I, I was going to say that it felt like back then, um, maybe uh, uh, there was there was like a headline that would just take everyone's attention for months and months and months. Whereas mm-hmm. now, and maybe this is just to do with the how accessible all news is now, but now I can read three crime headlines uh, in the morning, you know, on my Apple News app, and each of them are like, "What? That's its own." And not to be reductive about it, but like, that's its own movie. That's the most insane thing I've read all day, and they're you know horrendous things. 
And there was one recently that, like, I won't even bring up on the podcast. It was so sad, but it was about a murder of a child. And I and I remember, and I was thinking about it. I was like, this would have been everywhere in the 80s and 90s. It would have been the cover of every magazine. And now yeah. it's like, tomorrow there'll be a different headline that's just as devastating um, and, and also, like, unique in its depravity. Yeah. And is that just because we're getting, yeah, everything's so connected now? Um, yeah. I don't know, but... Uh, yeah, it was overwhelming. Uh, three headlines in a row, and I was like, well, this is more than I can even, like, take in. Yeah, right. and, and I think, too, like, if we look at, like, how the true crime space emerged and, like, what molded the public interest in, like, really major crimes. Like, if you think about some of the biggest headlines from the 80s and 90s, we're looking at, like, O.J. Simpson. We're looking at John Benet Rams. Like, we're looking mm-hmm. at these, like, major, major cases that, I mean, definitely needed the spotlight, but there was also, like, a ton of other cases that, like, maybe didn't get right. that, you know? And so um, so I, I think it's just, like, what gets attention, right? And that's what sticks with us. Um, and I think that those eras, that c- consumption of that one story presented to everyone is, like, what you were barraged by, whereas, like you said, now I'm looking at my apps. I'm looking, like, I'm not reading the paper necessarily, yeah. but I'm, like, I'm getting all way more information. So it does, it just seems different. You know, it's just a different mm-hmm. way that we're exposed to that, but it doesn't change the fact that it's all bad in the yeah, end. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Has there ever been a, uh, I talk about this on the podcast often and uh, it's inappropriate to say, is there like a serial killer who was kind of your guy, but on Mark Marin, he talks about comedians and he always asks like, well, who is your guy? And people are, Oh, George Carlin or, you know, oh, Sam Kinison was my guy. Was there ever a killer that just as a as someone with an investigative mind and a curious mind was someone you were more fascinated by, even though it's all bad, just someone that you were more fascinated by, even if it was their psychology that fascinated you? Because for me, it was Dahmer. I just, I, I was fascinated. This was your thing. Yeah, I just yeah. was fascinated by, um, the more I learned about him, the more he showed signs of this behavior as a child and, and how it was, um diagnosed back then um and how like the whole scope of the story the whole the scope of the story, story not just the crimes yeah. in fact like i'm less interested in the crimes you know i don't yeah. have as much of a stomach yeah. for that stuff i read one i mean i probably read 12 or 13 books on Dahmer, but one of them is the only time i've become physically ill from reading something mm. i had to put it down had to walk away watch some cartoons but him just as a whole even up to his end the way he died in prison and the the psychology of the men that killed him in prison was fascinating. But was there, yeah, yeah is, there a, is there a kind of infamous killer that's ever taken up your headspace from an investigative perspective or just a curiosity perspective? I can't say that there's, like, one, because, again, I don't, I don't like, fixate. I, like, tend to fixate on, like, the little unknown things yeah. and the things that, like... But I will say, like, one thing that really I have always been fascinated by, and I, it's everything from psychology to, like, all the backstory, and it's not even, like, an actual though it involved murder, it's not like a murderer, but I'm always fascinated by like the, the um, like Oklahoma City bombing, yeah. the Atlanta Olympic bombings, like these mm-hmm. major events where there's so many components to like the participants' um, psychology of why they do it, and, like David Koresh and like, yeah. like, you know, like stuff like that where I'm like something, not one thing happened there. Like there's not like right. one thing or one person to blame. There is a multitude of like systemic little society or like government oversight or no oversight or something that like contributed to like these major things that involve murder, obviously. 
And so like that's what always fascinates me the most. And so I love like consuming documentaries and stuff like that. But it does kind of eke into that true crime space because mm-hmm. it's like you can't help but like think deeper about it. Um, so I tend to like lean more towards like things like that. Yeah. And, um, like mm-hmm. usually it's people who like committed mass crimes. Um, mm-hmm. And I just wonder like because like one murder, a couple of murders, like obviously someone like Dahmer is is has a thing going on. But to then like mass murder and then live with that right or try and live with that like that's huge you know that's hard to even understand so mm-hmm. yeah that's something that i i think about more than than like a you know a ted bundy like i gotta know everything about him like yeah i just want to understand why this person did these things and who could have known about it beforehand to stop it or something like mm-hmm. that yeah that's truly fascinating to me yeah that was fascinating i did a bit of a deep dive on Koresh after watching the the narrative show but then i watched like two documentaries and for about two weeks i fancied myself a crush expert i was yeah, correcting all like, my I'm writing friends. a book yeah yeah because my friends had watched <laughs> the, the show like the the stars show i guess or the paramount network show rather uh what show is this it was just called waco oh wasn't that netflix? oh i didn't see that oh it was interesting wasn't it was what'd you say delia was it netflix it was on netflix nobody watched it until it went to netflix oh <laughs> yeah it was a paramount oh, wow. network show i think originally wow. and kind of disappeared even though it had like michael shannon and uh as one of the fbi uh, negotiators and taylor kitsch from friday night lights is like fell through the cracks fresh, <laughs> just fell through the cracks of like prestige tv when everybody was kind of pushing their breaking bad but when it went to netflix people finally watched it so there was like a bit of a I did a minor cultural resurgence kind of in the Waco incident. Yeah. And, and my memories of it were just as a kid seeing that right. on TV. Right. That's that. And it's just interesting because in my memory, if I had guessed how long that siege had lasted from me watching it on TV with my sisters, I would have guessed like, I don't know, it was like nine days or 10 days. Yeah. But it was like 40 days or close to 50 or something like that. And then yeah. to see how everything played into... Yeah, the whole story. The whole story. The That's the everything. bureaucracy on the side of the ATF. And uh, and then also his just, you know, everything. devotion to, <laughs> the, to the plan that God had for him or so, you know, he would yeah. profess. Um, right. Like it couldn't have been one thing. It was all of these things yeah. and all of these followers that were on board for whatever it was. Yeah. He was, you know, planning. I think it's, it's, it's almost... Insane. It's almost easier to be like, that person is a demented killer. They're yeah. a monster. You know, whatever label people want to put. That is easier, I think. Now, I can't ever speak for any victim's families. I don't think I could ever. But, like, for me, that's easier to understand. They have a fetish with this. They have a whatever. Right. That's their motivation. Mm-hmm. But then to just be like, this person just concocted this and got all these people to follow them or was able to do all this without any like anyone noticing like that's the kind of thing that i'm just like totally blows me away yeah um so yeah it's just it's crazy and and like even with with some of the episodes in park predators is like i under like whether it's a spousal domestic thing like we can wrap our minds around that right but mm-hmm. other ones that are like more like you said you listen to a couple of episodes like in the first couple episodes i talk about like act like some of these true and true predators like people that just used these areas to do what they wanted totally. to do like that is so blatant yeah um, they were just so there just, for crime they were like okay that. and so this is where this yeah. can happen and that's what's so cool is like every story in that show is so different and it just reminds you that like really no matter walk of life like 
you know, this can happen and they can happen in a national park. And, it, you know, just that whole piece of it was just what was so interesting about it. Yeah. Yeah. Has it made you any less interested in being an outdoorsy person since <laughs> learning all that you've learned about the crime that's happened at parks? Or are you just more vigilant than ever? Um, it has not deterred me only because um, these places are beautiful. They're meant for people to, you know, explore and to love and, you know, to treat well and it'll treat them well back. You know, um, I think when you, you introduce the human element of greed and murder and, you know, that's going to corrupt anything. Right. So, um, no, I we still love the outdoors. I still have a big bucket list for national parks. But that being said, the research that I did only makes me more vigilant. I'm already like level 5000 vigilant person, but <laughs> right. it, it um it was a it remind it was a reminder and I hope it is a reminder to the people that listen to the show that like you cannot trust everyone just because you're, you know, you have the same hiking boots and you have the same camera and you have the same dog or you know tenting equipment whatever. That does not mean you have commonality with that person beyond those things. Mm -hmm. So do not trust people with your life do not trust people with your loved ones if you see something that's wrong don't let that slide just because you think it might not be true you know right. what i mean mm -hmm. like be cautious always not paranoid not judgmental but be cautious for your own safety and for the safety of others because a lot of times in these parks people are in groups there could be an odd person here or there but as the group goes you know other people could become targets of a person maybe you're not their target you know so right just think about those things. So that is really what's more made me more solid in that thinking as I came out of writing the show, um, even more so than I was before. Yeah. Hmm. I have a story that is not worthy of your podcast, but it just came to mind with you, say, <laughs> with you saying that, which is that I was filming something in a park here in L.A., and I won't bore my listeners with the full story, but I was uh, chased by somebody with a knife. And it was so interesting I didn't think, uh, once I got out of the situation, it, A, I thought about it earlier when you said how quickly things can turn. Um, yeah. Because it was one of those confrontations where, you know, I could tell, and maybe, and I'm sure you've been in similar situations where um, there is almost something sixth sense about it. I clocked this person and I could tell their interest in me was not... Uh, passing they weren't gonna you know i was dressed weird i was filming this like science fiction short film right with no crew just they thought you were a killer they thought i was the killer that's the, the rub is they probably thought this i was the, I, with this tripod gonna be right they thought i was the psychopath most likely but i could tell everyone else in the park kind of put it together they were like oh this guy's filming something lol and they went on with their day but this guy was i could just read he didn't like my energy and i could read his energy and I just knew it. I just could feel. I was like, I'm not gonna make it to the to the uh, crosswalk to get out of the park before something happens. Like this guy's circling back around. There's gonna be a confrontation. And I was right. I mean, he kind of doubled back to make it look like he wasn't following me. But then I saw him catch back up, and it just you know the whole thing. I could feel the hair on my neck standing up further and further until finally mm. he ran right toward me and pulled a knife out of his pocket. And I calmed him down. Luckily, I said I started apologizing. I was like, hey, I think I've upset you, man. And I'm sorry. And he was like, you think I'm angry? Huh? And he just kept coming toward me. Right. And I was like, yeah, man, I think I made you upset. And I'm sorry if I did. And then I just ran and got out of there. Yeah. And I got back to my house and he stayed at the edge of the park. 
But what I one thing I did not think, which you just mentioned, is um, I got out of this situation, but there was still a guy in the park with a knife. And as soon as I was home, I was like, I well, it took me like three gin and tonics and five hours to calm down. <laughs> but in essence, I was out of the situation, so I put it out of my head. I didn't call the cops. Right. I didn't think about there could be somebody else that may now be a victim. And uh, so I felt horrible about that, but I posted on nextdoor.com and and didn't seem like anything else had happened that night or in the following weeks. Mm. But it is important to keep that in mind, that someone may not be, you not be may not be a target, but somebody else might be. Um, yeah, and I, I think about that often because, you know, a lot of times I'm with my husband. And, and, and again, in, in some of these cases, even in the show, like that, you know, I didn't deter somebody yeah. at all. But, you know, numbers is a good thing. But again, like you, like, like you said, and I said before, is there could be somebody else that then now becomes the target. So I, I think it's just like that personal safety, like head on a swivel thing. Yeah. Um, and some people, I think, lose that a little bit. It's so easy to lose that a little bit in these beautiful, you know, expanses and landscapes. Like, we're all yeah. just there to, like, appreciate it and love it and get that Instagram photo. But, like, mm -hmm. people are lurking. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, there are know. lurkers. <laughs> they know that you'll be, like, hypnotized by the yeah. beauty and the majesty. And or we don't know where we're going, right? Like, we're always mm -hmm. like, and so we're going to ask the stranger. Like, it, it's just it, things that we would not normally do, we would do when we're in situations that are, are far removed from our day-to-day -day lives. And in a lot of these spaces, that's the case, um, mm -hmm. unless you're someone that's like more outdoorsy and that's like you just camp every night. But yeah, so I just think it's it's that awareness uh, changes everything. Yeah. And in some of these cases, had one or two things been different, I think the outcomes could have could have been different. Mm -hmm. um, and it just didn't work out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you have an increased faith in humanity or decreased faith in humanity after everything you've done in your career because you see both sides right you see like people who do the worst but then people like you who want to solve things and solve mysteries and bring justice like where do you think that you fall <laughs> yeah I mean there are a lot of amazing people in this world there are a lot of amazing people in law enforcement a lot of amazing people in in journalism and, and in the public right so I have quite uh, a high sense of humanity i do believe that people um for for the most part want to do good i i i think that there are individuals who as all of us can put our self-interest above everything else and for most of us our self-interest is surviving paying the bills being happy whatever mm -hmm. some individuals their highest priority and self-interest is attaining momentary gratification and that can manifest in violent violent actions and so i think individuals that have those propensities i obviously have you know it's a bummer right i lose sense of you know that if you if you can take a human life and, and treat people in their bodies like trash you know um that's a sad thing but i do have a i do have an increased faith in humanity because i see the strength of people's families and loved ones who carry on their legacies and their stories. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, to see someone come out of tragedy um, and be forever written into true crime, to then be able to live a life and have a, a legacy for their loved one and make a difference and spread awareness, I mean, that is, to me, that is incredibly amazing. And so that kind of makes me go, good can come from even the most evil 
always. But That's not nice. everyone will see it that way. <laughs> well, it's wonderful that, that you can see it that way. I think that's very encouraging. I remind myself that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine you'd have to. I think it's you can't be like me and read three articles or three headlines and then just be like, well, everything I'm is bummed. garbage. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm never coming back. You're right. There's no this. hope. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here, Delia. And yeah. Uh, let people know where they can find your podcast and if you have social media that they can follow you on. Uh, let our listeners know where they can find you. Yeah, so you can listen to all audio check shows, including Park Predators and Counterclock, um, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, pretty much any listening directory. Um, you can follow at AudioChuck on Instagram. You will see updates on like all the shows and lots of like teaser material and pictures and things like that. So that's really interesting especially for uh, Park Predators because you're just like getting that inside bit into it. Um, parkpredators.com is the website. And then, uh, yeah, my Instagram is just delia.deambra.w because my last name now is officially a W, but <laughs> I still got my Delia um, Yeah, and then, uh, you know, all the social stuff. But um, the PR folks obviously can send that over for links and things. Exactly. But, yeah, um, social media is such a huge part of, of storytelling now i know to be on it to engage Uh and like be up to date yeah (laughs) yeah are you able to there's probably nothing true crime related you can do on tiktok but that feels like where everybody has to be now it's like i don't be surprised really is there like like, true crime and i know there's some horror shorts on tiktok yeah like paranormal stuff is heading to tiktok everyone's gonna be on tiktok now yeah. It's crazy. I I do not dabble in the TikTok and I do not dabble in the Snapchat. Yeah. Not against it. Just Same. have never registered. And uh yeah. if there's one out there, it's not me. <laughs> right. Well, you, it is someone it that is bad behind it. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here again. Thank and, you for uh, having me. Best of luck in all of all of your endeavors. Well, that was a very interesting conversation uh, with Delia. Thank you so much for being here for that conversation, Sapphire. Um, I think uh, true crime is not something we 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 tackle on the show often, but I think it's good to offset some of the, the sillier, spookier stuff that we deal with. So it was nice to talk to to Delia and hear a little bit about her her world, which is so steeped in in crime and yeah, it's a different type of horror. It is. It really is. Um, I feel silly talking about, I'm not going to talk about Pumpkinhead or Friday the 13th <laughs> Part 5, um, but it's good. It was a really interesting conversation, and her podcasts are really intriguing and well done. Very comprehensive, as we said, um, and there's a lot of humanity in there, I think, that uh, that is missing from a lot of true crime often. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So... Where can people find you, Sapphire, before I sign off and tell people how to follow The Untold Hour? Where can they follow you? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Awkward Sapphire. That is Sapphire with two Ps. And then, um, yes, I believe that's it. Awesome. Well, you can follow The Untold Hour on Instagram at The Untold Hour. And then, oh my gosh, I just closed the window that had our Twitter. (laughs) But I'm going to guess that our Twitter is Untold Hour Pod. And let's see if I was correct. I was correct. Also, our Gmail is 
untoldhourpod at gmail.com. Sorry, theuntoldhourpod at gmail.com. Ah, Jess is going to kill me for getting all of these wrong. (laughs) Uh, And we do want your listener stories. I haven't done listener stories in a number of weeks, but all that means is we're going to do some big listener story episode where we're going to have a listener story extravaganza because we have so many in the inbox. Yeah. So there may have been a listener story drought for the last few weeks, but there's about to be a flood of listener stories. (laughs) All right. Until next time, this has been Andrew Bowser and Sapphire Sandalo, and you have been listening to The Untold Hour. Bye. A podcast network.